Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue to pick up on this Psalm chapter 40, I keep going back to verse 17, even before we look at any other portion of this psalm, because I see myself there. I see myself, even as David saw himself, as poor and needy. Now I'm not talking about physically, materially poor. Most of us in here are not poor. Uh, compared to other countries in this world, we have all kinds of things within this country. This is speaking about the spiritual poverty and the neediness. I find myself, even as this psalm outlays uh, a thanksgiving to God and also a lament, there is a thanks for deliverance and there is a lamentation that God would be speedily in delivering them again. And don't you find that in your Christian life? Did you find that as a believer? It seems to be the mainstay in your life is lament and thanksgiving. You're thankful and then you're crying. You're lamenting about something. You're, you're something you're going through, a difficulty in life, a trial, a tribulation, a persecution, a sin in your life, a struggle that goes on, and a lamenting there, and a thanksgiving to God for deliverance, and back to lamenting again. And this is what David is saying. And yet the Lord thinks upon us. All the struggles and the difficulties and the trials that we go through, the Lord thinks upon us. Doesn't that blow your mind that the God of the universe, the God who has created all things, who upholds everything with the word of His power, thinks about you and me? You and me. Who am I compared to the 8 billion people that walk on the planet Earth? Who am I that walk on the face of this earth? Who am I that God would take notice of me. And yet this is what David says, yet the Lord thinks upon me. Thinking upon me. This is what I thought when I read that, is what we sang. Stanza three, all that I am I owe to thee. Thy thoughts, O God, how manifold, more precious unto me than gold. Now let me ask you this. Is God's thoughts about you more precious to you than gold? I mean, you sang it. But do you look and do you, you cultivate those thoughts of God in His Word about His people? More than your necessary food, more than the necessary things of life? I'm not saying that those things aren't necessary. But are they the most important? Is that the most important rank and priority in your life? Is the material things? Bodily exercise profits a little. Godliness is profitable unto all things, to the life that now is, and to that which is to come. Godliness. The bodily things, they're going to fail, they're going to fall. You're running, you're whatever, you're exercising. That is going to come to an end at some day. Why is it? Because you physically cannot do the things that you once used to do. And he goes on, I muse on their infinity... Uh, awaking that I am still with thee. Awaking and that we realize that we are still with the Lord, that He thinks upon us, that He cares for us as His people. So David says, you're my help, my deliverer. Don't delay, Lord. Deliver. Come speedily and deliver me. So this is the Christian life. And as I said before, I will ask you oftentimes, how are you doing? And you will say, well, I'm doing fine. And I'll say, where are you reading? And you will say, I'm reading in the Psalms because I'm going through something. That's right. We're always going through something. 
a difficulty in the life. And we resonate with the Psalms. Why? Because the Psalms unfold the difficulty of the life of the believer in a fallen, sin-cursed world. There's difficulties that come upon us and we lament, we groan, we ache, we hurt. We hurt inside, we hurt outside, we hurt spiritually, we hurt physically. There's emotional things that are all tied up and we struggle and we see the psalmist unfolding these very things in the psalms and we are like a magnet, we are pulled to that, we are attracted to that. We find comfort as we hear that word. It brings the comfort to the soul. And so there are seasons, beloved, um, in our lives of trial and tribulation and difficulty that we need to be people of prayer. Uh, And that prayer, concentrated prayer. A distinct prayer. Now maybe something that you generally just simply do every day, but in particular things that you're beseeching the Lord for. David found that to be in his life. Notice when he says here in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He is waiting and the Lord heard my cry. He is crying out to the Lord and he's waiting for God to answer his prayer. To come speedily and to to hear and attend to him. And David says that he does. God does that. David, oftentimes you find him in prayer through the trials and difficulties of life. And David had lots of them. Think about David's life and the persecution and the trials and even in the the decisions that he made that he caused much heartache upon himself. As a boy, and as he goes out to bring food to his brothers who are in Saul's army, and he's ridiculed by his brothers to come out to mock us, to look upon, to see what's going on in the battle. You, you keeper of these little sheep. So they're saying to him, uh, they were debasing him, they were downgrading him, uh, they were belittling him. He's nothing, he's insignificant. And yet here he is, hearing the taunts of Goliath, uh, for day after day, 40 days, he's in the valley and he's crying out, there is no God in Israel. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the Lord my God? So David wanted to fight with Goliath. Saul wanted to put his armor on him. David said, I have not tested these. I can't fight. I can't move with these. So he goes down with a, with a stone. With, he goes down with the, the five smooth stones that he pulls out of the brook. And he takes one and he places it in Goliath's temple and puts him down and then took his own sword and cut his head off. David is then a champion. He's exalted. He has much fame. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. And many began flocking to David. So much so that King Saul is now jealous of one of his best warriors in his army. So he begins plotting and planning to get rid of David. Now David has trial of all sorts of difficulty with Saul. So much so that he decides to leave. But Saul doesn't let him go. He pursues him. He chases him all over the Palestinian desert. And David, living like a beast, out on the field, in the plain, in the desert, for months at a time, being chased like a vagabond by Saul. David had trials. 
David questioned. Why did he question this? Would you not question if Samuel came and anointed you and said that you were going to be the next king of Israel and now you're living out in a cave? And you lament and you come before the Lord and you cry out to Him. And you began searching out and you began lamenting and thanking Him for deliverance. And the next thing you know, Saul is killed. He's killed in battle. David doesn't kill him. Ultimately, the Lord killed him using the Amorites, but He killed him. And David became king. Now what happened in David's life? David as the king, the Lord had given him so much, had enriched him so much. And then the first thing we find him doing is committing adultery with Bathsheba. And as he commits adultery with Bathsheba, the son that Bathsheba had died after a week. And David mourned for him. And then when he died, he got up, washed himself, and, and his comment was, who knows whether the Lord will be merciful to me in this. But it was because of this the Lord said to David, and you realize that when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, it went on for almost a year before he repented. And what happened to him? He became a miserable, sick man spiritually. He would not worship the Lord. We find that in Psalm 32. He was all dried up inside. He had no desire for the things of God. Here's a believer. But he has no desire for God's word, for God's worship, for God's glory. Why? Because sin is all tangled up inside of him. He hasn't repented. He hasn't confessed. And the Lord, in mercy, sends Nathan the prophet. Because those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He will bring his children to repentance. And Nathan comes and Nathan gives him a parable about a man who had a wee lamb and somebody came and stole it and killed it and butchered it. What's going to happen to this man? David says, as the Lord lives, this man will be put to death. And Nathan looked right at him and said, you're that man. I've given you everything. Why did you take this one little ewe lamb from Uriah? And the Lord says, the sword, you're not going to die, but the sword will never depart from your house. Talk about trouble. Now we have Amnon rapes David's daughter Tamar. And David does nothing about it. And so Absalom, another son of David, he is going to take matters in his own hand. So he plots and plans, and over a duration of time, he says, surely Amnon has forgotten my rage. Because that was Absalom's full sister. You see, David had seven wives. So he had all kinds of kids. Same father, different mothers. All within the kingdom. What tangled webs we weave, huh? So Absalom planned, when they went out to shear the sheep, Uh, He laid hold and killed his brother Amnon. That Absalom basically went rogue, but David didn't want it to be that way. Yet Absalom deserved death, but David wouldn't put him to death. The sword didn't leave his house. Absalom then brings a coup attempt upon David to overthrow David. David is back out in the wilderness, living like an animal, watching his son then, in the sight of all of Israel, lie with all of his concubines. Why? Change of authority. I am now the set-up king, as Absalom is saying. Then the fight, because David had many warriors, 
sturdy, trusty, seasoned men came against Absalom and his men. And Absalom was killed. Absalom was killed because of his vanity, his pride, his arrogance. And his hair was caught in a terebinth tree. Joab thrust him through, and then the armor bearers then took their swords and all pierced him through. And David wept for Absalom and not rejoiced that his men were saved alive. It's even at that point as David is misguided, Oh Absalom, Absalom, that I would have died rather than you. Oh my son Absalom. And the counsel that Joab says, If you don't go out now, you won't have a kingdom tomorrow. And he goes out and presents himself and refreshes the hearts of his people. David was misguided. Absalom deserved to die. He was a troublemaker within the kingdom. David had lots of difficulty in his life. And here he is still praying and trusting in the Lord. And that's what he says. Notice in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. This is the happy man. Now you think about being happy in the Lord, being joyful in God. Happiness dealing with our outward condition, situations in life. Joy is an abiding presence of God's comfort within the soul. They're two distinct things. They're not unrelated, but they're distinct. But the blessed man is the man who reflects upon the goodness of God. The blessed man is the man who is the happy man thinking about God's goodness towards him. I thought about that for a moment. Think about just Romans chapter 8. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the happy man. He's the blessed man. That he knows this. He's also the man that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Verse 18. He is the man who knows, verse 26, that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. He knows that God has predestined us unto salvation and so He is sanctifying us and He will glorify us. It must come to pass. And He is the one who knows that if God is for us, who can stand against us? He is the one who knows that all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. He doesn't understand how that the Lord is doing it, but that He is doing it. He has a trust and a confidence that God is working as He has promised in His Word. He has the comfort to know that I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That man is a happy man who knows the word of truth. And this is what David says. God is his trust. The Lord is his trust. He makes the Lord his trust. Notice this. This is the work of the Spirit regenerating the soul and then the individual trusting Christ. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. He's regenerated your soul. He's created faith within. He has liberated your will. He has enabled you to believe on Jesus, to understand and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you believe. God doesn't believe for you. You believe. You are enabled to believe. And so David is talking about the believer who understands that God is my trust. 
He's my trust physically to provide for me as the good shepherd. Whatever I need in life, the Lord will provide. As David has said, I have been old, I've been young, but I have never seen the righteous begging for bread. Why is it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes the provision. There is that temporal, continual provision that the Lord gives. But isn't it sweet that the Lord provides for us spiritually? He gives us the spiritual food for those who trust Him. What does it mean to trust the Lord? What does it mean to make the Lord your trust? It means, beloved, first and foremost, that your only hope in life and in death is the Lord. It means your security, your understanding, your upholding, your life is in the Lord. That He alone provides for all things necessary for body and soul. It means to trust His Word. It means to believe His promises. That if you come to Him and confess your sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's trusting in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways consider Him and He will direct your path. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in Him, beloved. Trust that you're safe and secure in the hands of Jesus. Trust that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Trust that Christ has satisfied the justice of God against your sins forever. By his perfect work. Trust. Trust that the Lord will provide. Do you trust? When you're going through struggle, do you trust the Lord? Where do you go when you're going through struggle? You see, how we respond in times of trouble, persecution, sickness, cancer, whatever it may be, death in the family, how we respond really is revelatory. It really manifests. It unveils what we are truly trusting in. Trials and difficulties tend to do that. And so, when the pinch comes, when the crunch comes in your life, where do you go? Do you go to the Lord? Do you go to the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Do you seek out the word of Christ? Do you are one with the psalmist and you said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Do you think even as the psalmist, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth, even forevermore. Is that your trust? What satisfies the justice of God? Christ. That's your trust. That's your hope. His word will come to pass. So you trust the Lord. You have comfort and confidence in Him. In His promises, in His provision, in His providence, you are trusting Him that He will bring it to pass. Here's this, this aspect of trust here. That all things are working together. Not might, but are. They are working together for our salvation. Boy, sometimes I don't see that. I don't feel it. Trust says, it must be so. The Lord has spoken it. And so we trust. Are you trusting, beloved? Is your confidence waned? Is your courage waned? Have you become more and more feeble in your life? Have you turned away from the means of grace? 
Are you cultivating God's Word in your life daily? Or is it now and again? Is it only when you have problems that you begin to seek out God's Word? What has taken the place and crowded out God's Word in your life? What has pushed it aside? What has marginalized God's Word in your life? What has done it? Something. We need to get back to the simple trust of God's Word. Trusting what God has said. And this man, he says, the blessed man doesn't respect the proud. Now, notice how this ties in together. The the prideful individual is the one who despises the things of God. He is wise in his own conceits. Even his prayer, as we read in our proverb reading, is an abomination to the Lord. He doesn't heed the counsel of God. He doesn't look to the teaching of Scripture. He doesn't believe God. And that's what separates a believer from an unbeliever. A believer walks in humility because he knows who God is. He knows who He is. The prideful, the arrogant, these are those, as he says, that have turned aside to lies. The whole world is built on a lie. You understand that? The whole world is built upon a lie. And the the people of God, those that are trusting the Lord, they don't look to that. They look to the teaching of Scripture. How was the world created? We know that the Lord created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, in the space of six days, and rested the seventh. It's not what the world teaches you. Watch some of the animal programs. And here these, these lunatics talking about billions and billions of years, about ha- animals and everything else evolved. That's the lies of the world. The lie of the world says, get all that you can, can all you get, and you know what, spoil the rest so nobody else can get in it. The lies of the world is, this life is all that there is, so grab for all the gusto now. Get it now, because this is all that there is. The lie of the world is, it's a materialism. The only things that are true are the things that you can see. These are the lies of the world. The one that trusts in the Lord because he's steeped in the Word of God doesn't hear that garbage. And that's what it is. It's garbage spawned by Satan to deceive the hearts of men. And there are many, many deceived. So David says, we turn aside. These, these liars have turned aside to the lies and we don't respect them. We don't give in to them. We don't hear them. But he says, many are the works of the Lord. Many, oh my Lord, are your wonderful works. Think about that. Do you stop at that text? What are the works of the Lord? God has created all things with the word of his power. He spoke everything into existence. Does that not blow your mind? I saw a rainbow the other day, just the way that the, the sun was positioned and a pivot was going and a rainbow appeared for a brief moment. How does that work? That, that, that's, a, that's a wonder. And then you have the, the rainbow in the sky, the ark that the Lord puts, which is a confirmation that he'll never again flood the earth with water. What a wonder that a rainbow is, or a hummingbird, or the certain flowers that we find, the wildflowers. You know, people, it's interesting, right? They, they, they sell asparagus here in Nebraska for all kinds of money. It's a high dollar item for asparagus. I was a kid in Michigan, we picked that out of the ditch. What you guys sell for big bucks here, we just go along the ditch. It, it grew, why is that? It grows wild in one place, other places they want to cultivate it. 
It's a wonder of God's creation. All the different trees, the different birds, the flowers, the bees, everything within its own creation, that God has created them within their own being. They have a wonder. And we ought to praise God for that. Many are your works, oh my God. But the works of salvation. We understand creation. We recognize the fall, that man has fallen. How about redemption? What God has done in redemption. In sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Like unto us in all things except for sin. And he came in the likeness of human flesh. And he was made subject to the law and all the infirmities that are in this world. So what does that mean? He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He felt pain. He struggled in that way. He struggled in the garden. He bled just like we do. It's the work of creation. What a wonder that God has redeemed a multitude. Are you trusting Christ this morning? Do you know of yourself you have broken all the commandments of God's law? Do you recognize that God commands perfection? Do you realize that you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you keep the commandments of God perfectly? Do you recognize that? And saying, well, we all sin, we've all broken it, doesn't heal it, doesn't do anything for us. Christ keeps the commandments in our place, beloved. He fulfills what we could never fulfill. But God doesn't remove His demands. He doesn't lower the bar. God commands perfection. And we don't have it. But Jesus does. And that's why we find rest for the soul in Christ. The law is no longer condemning me. Now I desire to abide in the law. To keep the law of God. To love God in this way. It functions in a different way in my life because of the redemption in Jesus Christ. Are you trusting Him? Is your hope and your stay? Is He your rock and your fortress? Your refuge? Do you run to Him? Is He your hiding place? Do you know you are secure in Him? Do you know you're covered with the righteous robes of Jesus Christ and you will never be cast out? You will never be condemned. You have passed from death into life and never more will you come into condemnation. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Are you trusting that? Well, proclaim it. Proclaim that redemption. Proclaim redemption in Jesus Christ. David says all the wondrous things that God has done. And notice this, your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. You can't set them down in order. You can't give an tally of them. There's no way that you can put them down on paper. God's thoughts towards us. God's thoughts towards us. God thinks upon us. Me, the one who has broken all of His commandments. The one that the Lord has said, Thou shalt, and I said, I won't. And yet He thinks upon me. He rescues me. He keeps me in the palm of His hand. He provides for me the nourishment physically. He provides for me spiritually the food that I need to sustain the soul. The Word of God, the Gospel of life. What a wonder that God thinks upon us. This great wide world in which we live. And God thinks upon us. God takes notice. We know what it's like. You know when someone takes notice of you. You know when all of a sudden someone says to you, and all of a sudden you hear their voice, and you can't believe that they've thought about you and your condition, your situation. God thinks upon us. And the thoughts of God are infinite. 
They're deep. They're eternal. The, the, the thoughts of God are immense. I don't even like to use the words people use today. You know, uh, we serve a big God. Big is a, is a relative term. Big compared to what? God is immense. What do you compare to immensity? <laughs> we, we have nothing. We know nothing. That's immense. God is immense. God is transcendent. God is eternal. God is infinite. And this infinite, eternal God thinks upon us, beloved. How did He think upon us? He sent His Son. What a thought is that? I will send my Son to redeem a multitude of those that I think upon. That I have lovely thoughts of them. Thoughts of redemption. Thoughts of care. Thoughts of compassion. Thoughts of concern. Thoughts of provision. I will send my Son. And my Son will redeem them. My Son will give His blood so that they might be brought into the family of God. That they might be restored to life and godliness in Jesus Christ. God thinking upon us in this way from all eternity. Now what blows the mind is that the way that God thinks is not the way that we think. God knows everything infinitely, immediately, eternally. We, we think what's called a discursive manner from A to B to C. We, we reason. Uh, we, we, we put little syllogisms together to reason things out. Laws of logic. You know, A cannot be A and non-A at the same time. Same relationship. We think in these ways. God doesn't think that way. Even as Isaiah says, His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. God's thoughts about us. I, it, just, it boggles the mind that God thinks upon us. Poor and needy people as we are, God thinks upon us. This is a good thing that God thinks upon us. That God thinks upon us is our salvation. That He remembers that we're flesh. He remembers our pain. He remembers our plight. He knows our situation. He thinks upon us and He delivers us. What a wonder. If you would, and notice that if I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Notice what David is doing. He is declaring them. He's declaring them in the Word. That's the call of the believer. To trumpet the things of God. The works of God. The redemption of God. The creation of God. And when the homosexual community wants to hijack the rainbow, we stand up. The rainbow is God's covenant with creation. It means what God says it means, not what you want it to mean. It means what God says it is. And we declare the works of creation. We declare the redemption that is only found in Jesus Christ. We declare that there is no other hope, there is no other way, there is no other truth but that of Jesus Christ. Declaring. Proclaiming. That's what it is for the church. To be a trumpet sound. To go out into all the world. But then he speaks of them. There's a difference, right? There's a difference right now is I'm proclaiming God's word and then later when I speak God's word to somebody. I'm not shouting at you. Speaking. This I think you can see from the pulpit to even in the home and the family when the parents are speaking to the children. David does both. And they both have their place. <laughs> this is the question, beloved. Is that what we're doing? 
Do we love the Lord and we trust Him enough to be a people to declare His praise, His salvation, His creation, His goodness to all the world? Do we have enough courage and confidence in our God who will provide that we will speak these things to our children? Do we love them enough to bring them the Word of God on a daily basis in our own homes? Will we declare and will we speak of the wondrous things of the Lord? Many will say, well, there are too too many to be numbered, so I better not even try. Beloved, get busy. Get busy declaring the things of the Lord. This is our call as the church. Is to speak about the things of the Lord as those who make the Lord our trust. What a comfort. God thinks upon us. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we are in awe, in wonder uh, that you think upon us. We did not deserve you to think upon us. We have not earned your thinking upon us. Christ has earned this. Christ had merited this. And we are those that proclaim that if not for the grace of God, there go I. We recognize that we were blind. You made us to see. We were spiritually dead. You made us alive. We spiritually, we were deaf. and You gave us ears to hear. And Lord, you have also loosed our tongue to proclaim your glories. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us comfort. Not arrogance. Not self-righteousness. Not smugness. But that humble boldness that rests upon the word of the Lord Jesus Christ and declares his praise. Lord, revive your church again. Uh, that we might be mission-minded, that we might go into our neighborhoods, our family and friends and unbelievers in the workplace and go out from there bringing the gospel to the nations. Lord, forgive us where we have failed. Continue to revive us and strengthen us and comfort and encourage our hearts. And we'll give you all the glory for Jesus' sake, who also taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name.